This is Second Look. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's News Director. I'm grateful for your company this afternoon. Stay tuned. We've got a preview of the area's annual summer music festivals from WMRA's Jesse Nadler. By the way, her favorite feature is the plastic cup ban at Red Wing. We've also got some analysis from JMU political scientist Bob Roberts and from Jeff Shapiro of the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Good timing, too. Tuesday is primary election day in Virginia. Although, in some places, the candidates have already been chosen for you. Details to come. But first, John Handley High School in Winchester graduated its latest class last weekend. Nearly 100 years ago, the city used $1.6 million in private money to create a model public education system. WMRA's Bonnie Barano looks at the lasting impact of that decision on public schools in Winchester and at how that gift fit into Virginia's legacy of racial segregation. Other public schools have received large contributions. $25 million was given to a high school in Abington, Pennsylvania several months ago. But Winchester's case is unique, partly because the gift came so long ago. Judge Hanley died in 1895. His will was invested in Virginia bonds. And then in 1910, the Hanley Library was built from that money. John Schroth is president of the Hanley Board of Trustees, which now controls an endowment of $4 million. And in 1923, the Hanley School, which is now our high school, was built. And then through the years, we used the money to build other schools. Now we use the money for teacher enrichment and endowment of the arts. Last year, Architectural Digest named Hanley High School as one of the most beautiful schools in the nation. Mike Dufresne is Hanley's principal. Uh, when I go on uh, recruiting fairs, uh, of course, we have a banner with our school in the background. And um, I tell people that's our school right there. But when we get in the conversation about recruiting, um, I invite them here. Outside my office, you step out on the steps and you oversee not just the Hanley Bowl, but you oversee the city with the mountains. It doesn't get any better than that. Dufresne School is fronted by dozens of white columns towering above brick arches and walkways. It evokes the classic look of the University of Virginia. What I've been most impressed with is the legacy, the pride, the tradition that I think has come from this uh, endowment of over 100 years. Jason Van Hoekelen moved to Winchester two years ago to become its school superintendent. And the legacy that John Hanley, Judge John Hanley, left uh, to this community back in the late 1800s has grown and grown and grown. And that commitment level of this community to education, in particular public education, um, is something that's real. Van Hoekelen oversees two schools that are on the National Register of Historic Places. Hanley is one. The other was a school for the city's black children. Built with Hanley money in 1927, four years after the school for whites opened, it was named Douglas School after abolitionist Frederick Douglass. It looks like a miniature Hanley High School. It has columns in the front, had a very nice campus in those days. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a pretty nice school. Douglas is a one-story brick building with four white columns. It has sat empty for years, though the school board says it will become its administrative building by 2021. Judy Humbert lives across the street from Douglas. She does not view Douglas as a miniature Hanley. I mean, a lot of things we got were hand-me-downs. You know, if they put new uh, stage curtains at Hanley, Douglas got the hand-me-downs. It was like their stepchild. And whatever they didn't need at some other school, they sent out here. Humbert graduated from Douglas in 1966, the spring before the city's schools were integrated. 
I don't think the teachers that we had at Douglas could be, uh, could have been any better than what we had because they took pride in what they taught us. They encouraged us to be the best that we could be. I don't know that we've ever felt that pride in Hanley. Maybe some people do, but I don't think every black person in Winchester felt the pride in that building than, that we had out here. Humbert was on the city school board in the 1990s. She's co-author of The Official History of Douglas School. It was a magnet school for blacks who were barred from local white schools and forced to travel long distances to Douglas. Her book is subtitled, A Tribute to Endurance, Belief, Perseverance, and Success. Today, non-white students make up the majority in Winchester's one public high school and six feeder schools. 62% of the student body qualifies for free or reduced price lunches. Yet officials say upper-income families still claim these schools, which makes a huge difference for garnering private support. The difference in a privately endowed public school system, you know, new state-of-the-art physics labs, chemistry labs, biology labs, new library, it was pretty amazing. To finish modernizing and expanding Hanley High School eight years ago, the city needed $72 million. One and a half million came from the Hanley Board of Trustees, two-thirds of it in the form of a loan. But much more of it, $10 million, was donated outright by alumni, parents, and other supporters. Hanley's greatest legacy may not be his money. It may be his model of private support for public education. For WMRA News, I'm Bonnie Barino. Summertime, it's the season of music festivals. WMRA's Jesse Nadler rounds up some of the bigger annual local music events to check out during the hot months. For those who can't get enough classical music, particularly that of Johann Sebastian Bach, the 26th annual Shenandoah Valley Bach Festival is a week-long Bach-analia. It kicks off at Eastern Mennonite University in Harrisonburg this Sunday. Artistic director Kenneth Nafziger likes to keep the repertoire fresh by pairing Bach with music from other composers, eras, and styles. In the past, he's fused Bach with Cuban, Bach with Russian, Bach with bluegrass. Here's executive director David McCormick. This year we're pairing Bach with Bernstein in celebration of Bernstein's 100th anniversary of his birth. And so we're doing an entire concert of Bernstein works, including West Side Story and Chichester Psalms. That performance is Saturday, June 16th. Two more centerpiece concerts take place Sunday, June 10th, and Friday, June 15th on the EMU campus. During the week, festival musicians will perform free noon chamber music concerts at Asbury United Methodist Church downtown. They're only an hour, so it's a good classical primer for newbies. It's another cold spell again. Moving into mid-July, there's the Red Wing Roots Festival in Mount Solon. Forty bands spread over four stages for three days of roots music. Americana, honky-tonk, country, alt-country, bluegrass, blues. Towering limestone pillars serve as a backdrop to the two main stages. Headliners this year include Trampled by Turtles, The Steel Wheels, and Josh Ritter. Here's Ritter's song, Homecoming. The nights are getting colder now, and the air is getting crisp. I first tasted the universe on a night like this A box of wine, an alibi, and the hunger in her eyes In the place where the tree of good and evil still resides The festival is billed as family-friendly with tons of free activities for kids and their parents. 
organizer Michael Weaver. You know, for the kids, a, a slackline course, a giant Jenga, a giant sandbox for the toddlers. Red Wing Roots is also proudly green. Throwaway plastic beer cups and plastic water bottles have been banned. Water is free on site, but concert goers have to bring or purchase their own non-disposable containers. We just have hundreds of people each year who email us in comments, who stop us and tell us about how awesome it is that we have that system. And, you know, one of the cool things about it is seeing people's willingness to embrace a positive change. Red Wing Roots has become so popular that on-site camping is already sold out. Late bookers can either come for the day or camp off-site. Doa Fest, that's short for Shenandoah Fest, is similar to Red Wing but smaller in scope. It's a three-day event that takes place in Luray late July on the banks of the Shenandoah River. The music is an eclectic lineup of pop, country, hip-hop, world, reggae, electronica. Like Red Wing, there's yoga in the morning. You can camp out. There's a stage that faces the river, so sunbathers literally splash in the water while a band performs in front of them. But don't expect great cell phone reception around here. Organizer Ivan Carpio. One of the things we really push is the idea of unplug and connect. And it changes the way people interact. You get to know your neighbor and you make friends. The loud music cuts off at midnight. That's when the silent disco begins. Everyone receives a pair of headphones. We have DJs come in and they play through headsets. It's an aesthetic that's interesting because people are dancing, but if you don't have the headsets on, they're just kind of moving to nothing. And as soon as you put the headsets on, all of a sudden you're a part of the party. Finally, the Stanton Music Festival, August 10th, is a week-long tour of traditional and experimental classical that draws musicians to Stanton from all over the world. There's no excuse not to get out and enjoy some music in the Valley this summer. For WMRA News, I'm Jesse Nadler. And full disclosure, both the Shenandoah Valley Bach Festival and the Red Wing Roots Festival underwrite programs on WMRA. Well, Virginians will go to the polls for primary elections on Tuesday. Four congressional seats are at play in the WMRA listening area. U.S. Senator Tim Kaine will also be on the ballot this fall with uh, three GOP candidates vying to uh, have the chance to unseat him. JMU political science professor Bob Roberts joined me last week to provide some perspective. Dr. Roberts, thank you very much for joining Mm -hmm. me today. Uh, we've got four districts to cover. Let's let's start with uh, the sixth district, uh, covering the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, goes south to Roanoke. It's an open seat this year with the retirement of longtime Republican Representative uh, Bob Goodlatte. Uh, the Republicans in this conservative district already have Ben Klein as their nominee, but right. the Democrats not going to find out until June twelfth. What is the Democratic side looking well, like? They have four candidates, and they're competing for the Democratic uh, nomination to go after Ben Klein in probably one of the most Republican House districts in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And what is it looking like? Uh, are the Democrats' chances any better this year? Or do you think this is safely Republican in it, the sixth? It would most experts would say safely Republican, but there's a wild card in the district, uh, which is the pipeline. And so you have a lot of Republicans, conservative libertarians, uh, who are very upset about the pipeline. Because of property rights uh, from Pro- their perspective. Property mainly. rights perspectives. It's a, it's a strange coalition. 
between the environmentalists and the property right advocates. Well, heading north to the 10th district, no uh, pipeline issue there. That covers Winchester and a big chunk of northern Virginia over to the D.C. suburbs. And uh, the June 12th primary is going to figure there as well. That district went for Hillary Clinton by 10 points right. in 2016. And this is considered a, a big pickup that opportunity is, for Democrats. That is the district that the Democrats thought they would have won last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barbara Comstock has been there for a couple of terms. Uh, she's, she's the Republican incumbent. Republican. She right. tries to distance herself from uh, Republican, for example, from Trump. Uh, there are six Democrats competing for that race. It's going to be a real nail-biter in terms of uh, there are a couple of candidates who have raised a lot of money. Most of the candidates have raised a good deal of money. It's not clear what's going to happen in terms of what Democrat is going to come out of that race and then how effective they'll be against Comstock. But the Democrats nationally expect that they can pick up that seat. Uh, Comstock has proven very, very effective in terms of distancing from Trump, so we'll see what happens. If, If they're going to get control of the House, they're going to have to take that seat, at least that seat back. On to the 5th District, which uh, covers a big chunk of Southside, also Charlottesville up to the D.C. suburbs, uh, mostly rural district. And we already have our candidates there. Leslie Coburn is the Democrat. And of as of last Saturday, Nelson County distillery owner Denver Riggleman, who right. uh, after Tom Garrett's surprising withdrawal from the race uh, a little over a week ago, Riggleman now the uh, the nominee for on the Republican side. What is that race looking like? Still right. it, it, safe it should, Republican. I mean, it, it it was so gerrymandered back in in two thousand that the the only very moderate areas of that district in your listening audience would be Charlottesville and Nelson County, Alvin Monroe County. The, the rest of the, the district is so conservative uh, that. It, but again, you've got the pipeline issue, uh, which is a, a major issue in in that district. Um, Riggleman is not well known in the district. I mean, he did run for governor. Uh, the Republicans are happy with that choice. Um, well, on to the seventh, which uh, Dave Bratt, the Republican incumbent, running for reelection. There are two Democrats running for the nomination, and um, against Congressman Bratt, and so Spangberger and Ward are the two Democrats running for that nomination, and most. Ex- Expect that she'll win it. I, that, that's what the conventional was. That's the, Abigail Spanberger, Ab- the, the woman Abigail, in the race. Yeah. That she'll win it, uh, former CIA and, and, and national security expert. And that's considered also as one of the most competitive House races in the country. And it's a different story for the statewide uh, Senate race, right. Tim Kaine. Uh, Democrat is the incumbent. Right. And uh, among the three Republicans, we've got a real strong Trump supporter in Corey Stewart. Right. We've got E.W. Jackson, the fiery right. evangelical pastor. And then we've got Nick Freitas, who is a two, two-term state lawmaker. Yeah, the, the Republican establishment wants Freitas. They want him uh, because they think he would be more marketable to the state as a whole. Uh, Corey Stewart has very, very strong backing among what I would call the core Republican base. The, the conventional wisdom is, if it's a very, very low turnout. On June the 12th. On June the, the 12th, primary. that he may very well win that race. Well, we'll be watching very closely okay. on June the 12th and in the general election. Dr. Bob Roberts is a professor of political science at James Madison University and the author of numerous books on American politics. Uh, Dr. Roberts, thanks so much Thank you. for your time and your perspective. Thank you. Well, let's continue the discussion of politics with a, a look back and forward with Jeff Shapiro, political analyst for the Richmond Times-Dispatch, here talking with WCVE's Craig Carper. Governor Ralph Northam signed a two-year budget that 
come January, if everything goes as expected, would grant hundreds of thousands of additional low-income Virginians access to health care. The principal feature of this $115 billion two-year budget is about $2.5 billion from the federal government to finance this expansion of Medicaid. Medicaid, of course, is a program largely federally financed that provides health care for the poor and disabled. But by expanding Medicaid and becoming the 33rd state to do so, Virginia is now fully complying with Obamacare. Ralph Northam, a new governor, has pulled off in five months what his fellow Democrat and predecessor, Terry McAuliffe, could not accomplish in four years. One would argue that this is clearly a reminder that elections have consequences. In addition to that Democratic sweep at the statewide level, the House Republican majority was nearly wiped out. And what did the new speaker do? Kirk Cox came out in favor of expansion with this work for benefits requirement that was resisted by Senate Republicans, but is not deemed terribly arduous by the new governor. It would apply to those able-bodied Virginians, those who could work or are seeking job training. This, by the way, is a feature of red state Medicaid expansion. Uh, Similar programs have been adopted in Arkansas and Kentucky. Of course, all this is going on as the Trump administration continues its efforts to kill off Obamacare. But one would note that many states, Republican states among them, have embraced expansion and have shown no interest whatsoever in giving it up. And this, of course, now has everyone asking, what will Governor Ralph Northam do for an encore? A big win means big expectations for Ralph Northam. There's been a lot of chatter about perhaps another push in the area of pre-K. Governor Northam also has been talking about big things in workforce development. That's sort of code for job training. The new administration and the Republican legislature have to figure out what to do with the state tax law to see if it should be conformed with the newly rewritten federal tax law. In terms of political challenges, the governor has to deal with this very restive environmental wing of the Democratic Party. It's quite angry over his seemingly cozy relationships with the electric utilities and his squishy stance on those new natural gas pipelines. Jeff, Tuesday is primary day here in Virginia, and the main event on the GOP side is the question of who will go on in November to challenge sitting U.S. Senator Tim Kaine. Is it going to be Corey Stewart, Nick Freitas, or E.W. Jackson? The early line seems to be that it will be Corey Stewart, who ran, of course, for governor last year and nearly knocked off Ed Gillespie for the Republican nomination. These candidates are, for the most part, little known beyond the Republican Party and, shall we say, poorly financed. Tim Kaine has raised over a million dollars this spring, and he's already piled up $11 million. Those three candidates have raised a total of uh, about $521,000 in this campaign. And they're trying to make up for that lack of money by throwing, if you will, rhetorical grenades at each other. And this week, Nick Freitas, a member of the House of Delegates, basically said that Corey Stewart is a bigot and a white supremacist. And Freitas went on at some length about Stewart's ties to the racially tinged violence in Charlottesville last August. The broadside certainly got a lot of attention. 
I would point out that Freitas himself has been somewhat Stewart-like. Remember that very incendiary floor speech he gave in March, tying Democrats back to the segregationist days. But the bottom line here is that Freitas's attack generated a response from the state Republican Party, a defense of Corey Stewart. And one wonders if that's perhaps a suggestion that what passes for the Republican establishment these days thinks that Corey Stewart's going to be the nominee on Tuesday. And Democrats are encouraged by a blue tsunami last November and think they can pick up possibly three House seats. The 7th District here in the Richmond area, that's Dave Ratt's seat, Scott Taylor's in the Hampton Roads 2nd District, and in Northern Virginia, Barbara Comstock's seat in the 10th Districts. It is looking increasingly likely that all of the Democratic nominees for those seats will be women, and that's consistent with the national trend. All across the country, women running in Democratic congressional primaries are outvoting or or outpolling men. And this is evidence of, of that pushback to Trump, in part because of his allegedly abusive behavior toward women, and that this pushback is rooted in gender. One note on the Republican side, Denver Riggleman, the Nelson County distiller who briefly ran for governor in 2017, is the substitute Republican nominee in the 5th Congressional District, anchored in Southside. Tom Garrett, who was in and out, and then out again, stunning everyone, announcing that he would not run for a second term, but acknowledging or announcing that he is uh, alcoholic and will be seeking treatment. And of course, in the 5th District, the Democrats have selected their nominee. That's Leslie Coburn, a woman, a former broadcast journalist. Thanks to Jeff Shapiro, political columnist at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Jeff, we will catch up again next week. Support for WMRA's News and Information Fund, which makes our award-winning coverage possible, is provided by Bib and Dolly Frazier, Les and Johnny Grady, Klein May Realty, Eugene Stolzfus Architects, Joy Loving, Janet Tretner, Nancy Barber, Pam and Jim Huggins, an anonymous donor, and by a grant from a donor-advised fund of the Community Foundation of Harrisonburg in Rockingham County. As is always the case, you can find much more about all the stories you heard today and every day at WMRA.org. That includes photos and hyperlinks that you can follow to learn more. And if you would like to support local news coverage here on WMRA, just go to WMRA.org, mouse over news, then click on News and Information Fund, and be sure to click like on Facebook at WMRA Public Radio, too. And you can follow me on Twitter at WMRA News to get the latest on our coverage. And in the meantime, get a daily local news update on your smartphone every weekday morning. Subscribe to our news podcast, the WMRA Daily. I'm Bob Levicky, WMRA's news director and morning edition host. I'll talk to you in the morning. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.